Acts chapter 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timur, and Parnamis, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now we're in the section uh, of the book of Acts where Luke is showing how the gospel was expanding in Jerusalem. And we're just about to shift where the gospel begins to go out of Jerusalem. And, and Luke really wants us to see that, that the, the church was growing. The church of Jesus was growing in spite of persecution, in spite of struggle. But with this authentic growth does come indeed authentic problems. There, there are persecutions. There are, there are sin issues that creep up into the church. And there are also logistical problems that happen. There are things that, that keep us from loving the way we know we're meant to love. And this is an authentic problem that comes with authentic growth. But here's the good news. The good news is God uses authentic problems to bring more authentic growth. And this is really important for us to understand. This, this principle, the simple principle that we're going to look at today in these seven verses is important for us to understand, especially in this time of transition we find ourselves in. There's going to be lots of logistical things that go wrong in this time of transitioning the church. We're, we're, we're going to see things go parachute. We're going to wonder, oh, maybe we need to do that different. Or maybe we need to fix this thing. Or There's going to be lots of that stuff happening. But that by itself isn't any kind of indication that somehow God's not in this. If anything, it's indication of how God wants to continue to grow us. So how does this work? Well, let's see how it works. Starting in the first two verses, I'm going to give you four things that it should be on your handout, but starting in the first two verses, we, we need to see that the problem that they had was a relational problem. In verse 1 again, uh, Luke tells us plainly that there was a complaint by the Hellenists towards the Hebrews. The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. Most of them would have lived outside of Jerusalem. They would have been more sort of culturally in tuned as Greek speakers. And their complaint is against the Hebrews. These would have been uh, Aramaic-speaking Jews that lived in and around Jerusalem. Now, it's important when we talk about this complaint that we recognize that both of these groups that, that, that Luke is listing here are, in fact, these groups in this context are believers in Jesus. These are believers whose, whose cultural backgrounds differ. And we don't... We know the complaint is about the fact that the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, were feeling like, hey, our widows aren't getting taken care of in this daily distribution. We'll talk about the widows in a second. But the, but the thing is, we don't know for sure what was going on here. We know that there was some sort of a cultural tension going on here. 
because of this lack of distribution. And it could have been cultural, it could have been class. There is this, also this issue of sometimes the, the Hebrew uh, Christians might have thought themselves as more superior to the Greek uh, you know, uh, speaking Jewish Christians. There might have been something going on there. Or it could have been just the fact that this was completely unintentional. It was just something that went wrong and nobody meant to do it. But the issue is here that you need to see is that no matter what the underlying problem was, this is a relational problem. It's a problem about how we relate to one another as Jesus followers. This is the key thing. Now, when it comes to widows, this was something that was also key in the early church. The early church took very seriously the, the, the taking care of those who were most vulnerable in society. And widows, of course, in the first century were by far the most vulnerable. There was no sort of life insurance policies, really. There, there could have been if you were a more wealthy Jewish person who, 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 uh, whose father had a, a serious dowry. That dowry would have been given to the husband when he married you. And then if the husband dies, some of that dowry goes to you. That was the closest thing to a life insurance policy. But most people didn't have that kind of stuff. There was no social sort of uh, uh, net to, to sort of protect people if things got really bad. So really, when you, when you were a widow, if, if something happened to your, or, or you were married and something happened to your husband, you really didn't have a means of income. And, and so things could get really, really difficult. And don't forget as well, in this context, many people had come from around the known world at Pentecost to celebrate the feast, and they stayed. They stayed because they came to know Jesus, and they were thinking, man, Jesus is going to come back any time. And that began to put a financial, financial pressure on those first Jesus followers. Now, now, this is important because what we see with, with the apostles is an immediate response. There wasn't blame shifting. There wasn't overanalyzing about, well, what, what was the cause here? What's going on? They were simply saying, how do we make this right? How do we repair this relationship? Now, now, James tells us, this would have been Jesus' half-brother who wrote the book of James. James says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. One of the ways that we as Jesus followers get most quickly stained is by how when we stop loving each other the way Christ loved us. But they didn't do this. They saw that there was this relational problem, and so they, they, the, the apostles do something really particular. Look at verse 2 again. It says, The twelve summoned the full numbers of disciples and then said, It's not good for us to stop preaching the word. Now, we'll talk about that in a second. But I want you to notice that it says they, they, they called the full number of disciples. Now, at this point, there could have been upwards of 12,000 Jesus followers in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not sure that they kind of had a gathering of 12,000 Jesus followers. They might have. But they for sure had representations from every family. The, the idea that Luke wants us to see here is they're calling everyone out. Because why? Because God's people, all of God's people, are called to maintain relationships. You and you and you and you and me have a responsibility to make sure that we are relating to each other in a way that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our, our, our call, our responsibility. So when the apostles call them there, they do this because they recognize this is a relational problem. 
Now, I, I, I probably read this verse to you guys, these verses to you guys, probably every other Sunday I preach, I guess. And you might be sick of it, but I'm going to say it again. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, some of you might be thinking, I know, John, you say this all the time. We get it. You say this all the stinking time. Well, I'll tell you what. When you guys start doing it, I'll stop saying it. When we get so good at this, that every time we hear this verse read, we, we erupt into applause. Yes, praise God, he's doing this in us. I'll stop quoting it. Because this is what God calls us to do. There's a call to demonstrate the gospel by how we love one another. And we just heard a testimony about how the gospel's going out. I, I loved how Mark said that, the love of God in a box. I love that. The gospel's going out. But listen, first and foremost... We want that to overflow from how we love each other as a group. And this is not just Jesus who said this. The, the, the first followers caught on this quickly. Uh, uh, Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 6. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That's the shoebox appeal. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's us here today. Peter says something similar. The Apostle Peter, he says, The end of all things are at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Sober in exhortation that he follows with this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This is exactly what's happening with this church in Jerusalem. You see some widows being neglected. Again, no debate, just simply, how do we sort this out? How can we practically demonstrate God's love? So they have a relational problem, and they bring forth a spiritual solution. Look at verse 3. Therefore, brothers, Luke writes, or, or, or Peter says probably, pick out from among you seven, of good, seven men of good repute, and he specifically describes them as full of the spirit and of wisdom. Good repute doesn't just mean good character. It is, it's that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. It means, listen, these men were men who sought to live their lives well. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is us living our lives skillfully, living our lives well from God's perspective. But they're seeking to live their lives well, listen, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what happens when we try to live our lives well on our own strength? You know what happens? At best, we produce wax fruits. It might look nice, but someone takes a bite of it, and you're like, yeah, what's this? Only the Holy Spirit can produce in and through our lives the fruit of the Spirit. These were men who were producing that, right? And he says to them, verse 3, notice, he says to them, you pick out these men, right? First part of verse 3. And then he says, whom we will appoint to this duty. This is important because this is not the apostles. This is not the 12 going, aye, we're busy. We can't do this. It's, this is not them sort of saying, we, we're too busy for such things. We don't want this responsibility. No, this is them saying, listen, we're, we're not ignoring our responsibilities, but we're insisting on congregational involvement. We're insisting that all of you guys are a part of this. So if you get annoyed that I'm always saying, got to love one another, got to love one another, that's okay. I'm a good company. The apostles did the same thing. We got to love one another. This is what God calls us to. 
Now, and there's a reason for this. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, the, 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 the apostles say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. I love that prayer is put first. That the call of the apostles, those who are laying down the foundation of God's truth, and this is the first thing that, that Luke really wants us to see in Jerusalem, the foundation of God's truth being laid down by the apostles, being confirmed by signs and wonders. But their first priority was prayer. It was prayer. Now, I wish I could say to you, I wish I could say to you that my first priority for you is praying for you, that I spent as much time praying for you guys as individuals, or that we as elders spend as much time as praying for you guys as individuals as we do preparing Bible studies. But I honestly can't make that claim. But I can say this. We desperately feel how desperately we need God to work in your lives. We pray with that sort of desperation, God, you have to work in the lives of your people. God, we don't have the wisdom it takes to lead these people. Now, I'm not saying we're apostles either. Please don't mis misunderstand me. I'm just trying to apply this practically. The re reality is this. Listen, what they needed was time to pray and time for the ministry of the word. Well, what do we mean by that? What's the ministry of the word? It's not just preaching from the pulpit. That's not just what they did. They went from house to house. They, they had to meet with people and counsel with them. They had, to, they had to take time to, as we see in the New Testament, write letters to other churches. They, they were busy communicating God's life-giving word in multiple ways. And they knew this had to be the priority. This is important. It's important because this is something that we don't want to lose. As we go through the book of Acts, we don't want to lose that this was the priority of the apostles. This was the priority of God's people. God's people. We, we, we definitely see in the book of Acts God doing supernatural things by the Holy Spirit. We definitely believe both, both convictionally and practically God still does supernatural things by his Holy Spirit. But the priority has always been the word. It's always been what does God say? Why? Just because we want to be clever or you want to show how much we know? No, because we believe God's word is life-giving. Luke specifically li likes to highlight this in his gospel. Let me give you one example. You guys know the story. Remember Mary and Martha? Jesus is at their house. Martha's running around like crazy trying to cook food. Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha gets stressed out. Come on, Lord, don't you care? You remember this? It says that Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching, and Jesus said, this is the one thing that's necessary. And Mary has chosen that good portion which will not be taken away from her. This is not Jesus rebuking Martha as much as confirming Mary, you're choosing that which is life-giving. Martha's service needed to flow more from that life-giving power of God's word. But also we see this in 1 Timothy, Paul exhorting Leaders in the church, to keep what it says in verse 1 Timothy 4, 16, keep a close watch on yourself, that is your life, how you live, and on the teaching. Persist in this, for in doing you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Why am I bringing this up? Because it's so important, listen, it's important for all of God's people that those who lead God's people, both men and women, are those who are being fed by the word of God so they can feed you the word of God in a variety of ways. 
And part of us feeding you is really what Paul says in Ephesians 4. We equip you so we can do that ministry of one anothering. This is what we mean by a spiritual solution. It's got to be a work of God's spirit through God's word in God's people that actually deals with these relational problems that, that creep up. But also it involves, listen, a practical process. Look at verse 5. In verse 5 it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Gosh, that's so nice. I would love, I would love, oh, let me change this. I do love it when occasionally me or one of the other brothers preaches and you guys are like, yes. Instead of the, uh. That you guys go, yeah, that's what God wants us to do. I want you to think about what they're saying. Peter is basically saying, I'm assuming Peter's the spokesman here, but the apostles are basically saying to the whole congregation, it's your responsibility to be involved and then make sure this logistical thing gets sorted out. And they go, yes, great idea. We have needs at Servants Church. There's places to serve. Ushers need more people. Kids ministry needs more people. Music, the music team needs more people. Setup, takedown needs more people. We're trying to get a road to go in at Hillcrest. That needs loads more people. And I say, well, you guys want to be involved? And you go, that's a, uh. But really what, what God's doing, when God's doing something by his spirit in his people's lives, is they go, yes, that makes sense. All of us doing what we can do to get the gospel out. Now, what's interesting here is that in verse 5, with this practical process, it says that they, they pleased the gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. We'll talk a lot about Stephen next week. And Philip, we'll talk about him in weeks coming. And then it lists these other men. And I just want to be clear, all the seven men that are listed here are men who would have been Hellenists. They would have been from their Greek names. They would have been from the Greek-speaking Jewish. In fact, one of them, uh, this last one mentioned here, uh, uh, where is he, Nicholas. Nicholas, a, a proselyte, would have been someone who was a complete Gentile. He wasn't even Jewish by, by, uh, by ethnicity. And he becomes a Jew. And then when he hears the gospel, he becomes a Christian. And Luke's trying to set the groundwork here. He's trying to say, can you kind of get a hint that this is when the gospel's about to go boom outside of Jerusalem? But also he wants to introduce us to Stephen and he wants to introduce us to Philip because these guys will be important. But it's also important that we see when there's this issue, this potential cultural tension. This is important for us as a very diverse church. And this potential, with well, this potential cultural tension, the, the answer was not just like, okay, those, those, that certain group is complaining. They're feeling left out. Let's just go kind of assage them. Let's just kind of say, okay, what can we do to help? They're needy. Let's just meet a need. That wasn't what they did. They valued, listen, they valued the, the, the Hellenists not just as needers, you need, you need, but as leaders. We want to raise you up to do this. Can I say to you that we are purposely, prayerfully asking God that our leadership would continue to develop in a way that reflects our congregation. There would be more and more people that reflect the diversity. Not some way where we're kind of going, okay, well, you fit that, that line, so we're going to stick you in there, and you fit that line. No, no, just that we would see us as a group of people catching the vision of what God wants to do with us, a church, that we reflected on all of us maturing and people being raised up to be involved in this. 
Because we have to ask the question, what's the most loving way to meet practical needs? We've got to ask that question. Not, they, they were asking this question, obviously, in Jerusalem, first century. We have to ask this question at Servant Church, 21st century. But we also have to ask this, listen, how can the leaders provide a practical accountability? Because this is what they were doing. Notice what happens in verse 6. In verse 6, it says, These they set before the apostles, these seven men, and they prayed, that's the apostles prayed, and laid their hands on them. Laying on of hands is a symbol of transference of authority. They're laying their hands on them. So in other words, the apostles say, we want you guys to be involved in this. You need to, you need to pick. You, you know who's really walking with Jesus. Bring them to our attention. Remember, there's thousands upon thousands of people represented here. And we will, we will pray, God, is, are these the right ones? And we will lay hands on them and say, okay, they now have the authority to go out and demonstrate the gospel by making sure widows are taken care of. Listen, this, this connection between the supernatural and the practical is everywhere in Scripture. If you come from a, a, a background or you have a personality that's so consumed with the practical, you're probably more like me and you're thinking, okay, what about the logistics? How, how's, who's going to cross that T? Who's going to dot that I? How are we going to make sure all these details get done? I want to encourage you in something. The Holy Spirit is into that. And if you're from a background, you go, well, we just need to see God move powerfully. We want to see the Holy Spirit work because if the Holy Spirit doesn't work, nothing's going to get done. I want to encourage you, the Holy Spirit is in that. And he's in both at the same time. Listen to this. Luke specifically brings this out again in his gospel. Do you guys remember the story of Jairus' daughter? He was the, uh, Jairus' daughter, Jairus was the, uh, the leader of the synagogue. And he goes to Jesus, remember, and he says, my daughter's dying, and Jesus goes with him, and then he gets interrupted by the woman who has a flow of blood. You guys remember the whole story, right? And finally, when he gets there, uh, uh, Jairus' daughter's passed on. Well, Jesus, you guys remember, he clears the room. He goes in there with his disciples, and he takes this woman, this child, this little girl who's dead, and he says, it says, by taking her, her by her the hand, Jesus called, saying, child, arise, and her spirit returned. And she got up at once. That's, you can't get a bigger miracle than that, right? And what happens? And he directed that something should be given her to eat. That's pretty practical. Why does Luke put that in there? Because there's no contradiction between the practical and the miraculous. You guys following me? If God is saying to you, I want you to serve this way, a certain way, and whatever the way it is, you go, this is intensely practical. I know it's not as important as the miraculous. You're getting it wrong. That's not true. Both those things go together as Jesus continues to build his church. And if you think, if you're serving that way, or if you think that, oh, I can't really serve that way because i got to wait until God wants to use me in the miraculous, you know what? Take a hint from the book of Acts. The miraculous usually happens to those who are willing to serve this way. That's what we're going to see next week. Another example, the feeding of the 5,000 in Luke chapter 9. What happens? There's about 5,000 men. You guys know the story, right? Jesus says, give them something to eat. And he's about to multiply bread of one boy's, one boy's lunch and multiply that to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. And it says there are about 5,000 men. And Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. Very practical. Now, did he have to do that? Did he have to really organize it? I mean, Jesus, could he just say, be fed? Boom, and they all would have gone, whoa, that's amazing. 
But he does it through an orderly, logistically important way. Why? To involve as many people as possible in the work that only he can do. This is what I mean by a practical process. Please, church, please get this through your head. What we need God to do, only God can do. What God calls us to do is a privilege to do, and that practical and miraculous go together. Lastly, here's what we see happening. In verse 7, it says, this is the result. The word of God continued to increase. What does that mean? Does that mean the Bible got bigger? <laughs> what does that mean? No, it means that the gospel and all that it contains and all that it expresses is increasing in its influence. Why? Because this is what happens. When there's committed love, it always increases gospel influence. Read church history, man. It's all there. When God's people loved this way, people go, wow, they have some weird ideas, but look at how they love each other. This has always been how God gets people's attention, unbelievers' attention, is by how we are committed to love one another. Also what happens, verse 7, and the number of the disciples uh, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Where is this happening? Where are the widows being neglected? In Jerusalem. Where are the disciples being called to be involved? In Jerusalem. Where are more people being added through conversions? Not, oh, I'm, I used to go to First Baptist Jerusalem, but now I go to Servants Jerusalem. Not that. But people saying, I didn't believe in this Jesus, but I saw his love demonstrated in his people. I want to hear about this Jesus. Remember what's happening. The gospel's being demonstrated so that the apostles can do what? Proclaim it as clear as possible. And we're going to see throughout Acts, it's not just the apostles who do this. It's all of God's people. But the reality is this. The local church increased through new believers when they did this. This is a supernatural increase. Lastly, I'm almost done, verse 7. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the, to the faith. Now, this is interesting. Now, there was many, many, many priests. And most of the priests that we see mentioned in the book of Acts are in a high priestly position. And, of course, they were the most vocal opponents of the gospel. So these are probably people in lesser positions. There were many, like literally thousands of priests in a kind of a lower position who were, in a sense, they were sort of bivocational. They would serve at their rotation in the temple. Remember, like, John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah? It was his turn to serve at the temple for the two weeks. And you, know, you guys remember that story? And there's the, the whole miracle that happens and, and, and talking about uh, uh, John the Baptist's birth. So he was probably one of those. He's, he's a priest, no doubt. But he's, you know, the, the, the other 50 weeks of the year, he's not actually in the temple. He's basically selling, I don't know, he's selling leather goods or something to make a living. And so it was, it was probably this, that group of, of priests. But nonetheless, these were people that would have gone, ah, that Jesus stuff, I don't know, I don't know. But when they saw the love of Jesus displayed by the people of Jesus, they came to faith. Religious opponents became obedient believers. Here's the point. Growth isn't easy. It's not easy. And I don't just mean numerical growth. I mean spiritual growth. When God wants to grow us, it's not an easy process, but it is definitely good. 
Jesus talks about this in John chapter 15. I'm not going to quote it, but just basically you can look up John chapter 15, verses 7 to 11, and here's what you're going to read. You're going to read that as we abide in Christ and his word abides in us and we pray for what we know God's will is, we bear much fruit and God is glorified. His unique value is seen, taste, tasted and seen. God's glorified and our joy is full. Is that good? Is God being glorified and our joy being full? Are those things good? Yeah, they're good. Are they easy? Nope. Growth is hard. But, but here's the deal. Galatians 6, 9, I'll close with this. Paul writes, let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Servants, we're bearing fruit already. And we're going through some problems sometimes. Logistically, sometimes things are hard. But do you believe what God says, that those authentic problems are to lead to authentic growth? Let's not grow weary in well-doing. Let's keep going. Let's keep abiding. Let's say, God, by your Holy Spirit, enable us to demonstrate the goodness of your gospel. Here's where it starts. It starts with believing the gospel. I, I, I don't know every single one of you well enough to know for sure that each one of you is born again. Those that I know well, I, I, I can see the evidence of God's spirit in your life. In fact, I am sure God's spirit is working in your life even if I've never met you before because you're here. And if you're here underneath the gospel, it's because God's working in your life. Sure of that. But do you believe the good news about Jesus? Do you believe that God so loved you that he sent Jesus? He sent Jesus to show you how much he loves you. He sent Jesus to live the life, the perfect life you and I can't live. Jesus always abides in the, with the, in the Father's love. Jesus always does the right thing. Jesus always bears fruit. We don't. And that's why we put our faith in him and not ourselves. Because where we fall short, he succeeded. Where we failed, he succeeded. If you want to bear fruit, it starts there. If you want to go, it starts there. It starts with you not trusting in yourself, but putting your faith exclusively in Jesus. I really want to encourage you to do that if you haven't done that yet. Do that today. But once you've done that, once you've said, yes, Lord, I want to receive what you've done for me. Once you've believed that, guess what? God starts a work that he promises to finish, causing you to grow. You guys want to grow? You guys want to grow? Well, let's grow.